Welcome back to the Thermodye Podcast. Today, we've got a very special episode for you guys where we are joined by a doctor of optometry, Dr. Taylor Groot. How are you doing today, Taylor? Hi, how are you? Thanks for having me. So I thought it'd be a fun question to start off with. What does a typical day you sign up or I sign up to work with you as a doctor of optometry? And how does that defer your practice defer from a regular optometrist or ophthalmologist? So basically, I work with clients one-on-one, just like health coaching, helping them with um, their eye problems. So anything from like cataracts to like something like a rare genetic eye condition. Um, So basically, I do bioenergetic testing. um, So that's based off client's hair and saliva. Um, We can do that remotely. Um, basically that gives me a good idea of where their imbalances are, mineral deficiencies, vitamin deficiencies. Um, and it also tells me like if there's like parasites, mold or bacteria that's affecting your eyes. Um, I also really like it because you can kind of tell, uh, what remedies will work best for people. So if that's like homeopathics, um, just like supplements in general or any dietary changes, it really gives me a good direction um, on how to work best with clients. So I love that. Um, But yeah, so how it differs is your general eye doctor obviously wouldn't be doing bioenergetic testing. Um, I definitely think there is like important things an eye doctor, like a conventional eye doctor has to offer like visual field testing um, that can be helpful. Um, Even things like OCT, which is basically kind of, like taking an ultrasound of the retina and that tells you like how many cells there are. Um, so that's a good way to kind of early for early detection. And I really think, um, things like Alzheimer's can be diagnosed early using like looking at the cells in the retina. Um, so that's kind of cool. There's a lot of like really cool technology. Um, the other thing that's cool when you go to an eye doctor is that you can get a picture of your retina. Um, and then just by looking at the blood vessels in the retina, um, you can actually tell if someone has like hypertension. Um, you can also see if someone has something like macular degeneration, which is a buildup of lipofuscin mm. in the retina. I did not know. Um, so there's definitely things that um, I like about conventional practice. Um, the technology is really cool, but for like chronic diseases, it's it's good at like detecting, obviously, and it's also important for early detection, but in terms of like what you can do with like insurance and things like that, Mm -hmm. you can't really spend as much time as I can with patients, um, working on, you know, everything from like diet to like detoxing supplements. You can't really do all that. Um, so I definitely think both are important. Um, it's just a shame there's not a better way to like integrate the two. Yeah. Yeah. Do you work with other doctors at all with, via like ophthalmologists? Ophthalmologist? No, I don't currently. Okay. I'm just doing this on my own. But um, yeah, I mean, I definitely think for what I do, it's it's good for me to know like what, you know, what their doctor says and everything. And I definitely don't tell people like, don't go to the eye doctor. Yeah. Um, it's definitely important information for me to know. Um, but as far as like seeing their scans and things like that, it's like not as important. Um, just because once I know the diagnosis, I pretty much, Mm -hmm. I know how to go from there. So, so the first thing you do when you walk into the eye doctor, pretty much, well, usually they dilate your eyes, which I know, um, it's, there's some problems with the typical vision test, but what does 2020 vision actually mean? Cause that's what we're, I guess, all going for. It's normal vision. Would you say? Yeah, so 2020 is kind of like what they want you 
to get down to. And usually once you get 2020 vision, the doctor is like, Oh, okay. Your vision's perfect. Um, but yeah, there's definitely more to vision than just, you know, get, seeing 2020 on the eye chart. Um, when we think about the eye, it's really like a reflection of your brain and it tells you like what's going on in the brain. Um, so basically like we actually have visual fibers that go to other parts of the body. So like 20% of your visual fibers are actually going to other parts of the body. Um, what do you and mean then, by that? so like you have, you know, your visual cortex mm-hmm. and 20% of the fibers that are coming from your visual cortex are actually going to other parts of the body. So it's not all just like basically there's this whole idea that there's like eyeballs kind of like all over the body. Um, and that's, I think how people have, like I read Dr. Lieberman's book and he talks about how in a meditation, he was able to just like get his vision back to like 2020 perfect seeing. Um, so I really think there's a lot more that we don't know. You know, they say like you only use like 1% of your brain. Mm-hmm. it's probably similar, uh, idea with vision where we're not using like all the potential that we have because we're so used to relying on the same like pathways. They talk a lot about that in PRI as well, which we'll probably dive into, but how kind of a lot of times your compensations are your superpowers. Like, so that the, uh, the power lifter, the lineman can't move very well, but that allows them to produce a ton of force, which is interesting. It's kind of a that's interesting. Corollary thing. So, um, back to 2020 that, what does it literally mean? Yeah. So it literally means that you can see, um, so it's based off of, so it's like test distance over letter size. That's what like 20 over 20 stands for. Uh, Um, so the test distance is 20 feet and the letter size is 20. So it, basically I think the problem, I don't think everyone should be corrected to 2020 because let's say like you're being corrected to 2020 and they're like, okay, these are your glasses. Um, you're nearsighted, which means you can't see far away. Mm-hmm. And they're like, okay, wear these all the time. What that means is that if you're wearing them up close, those glasses are 20 times too strong. Wow. So you don't want to be wearing glasses that are 20 times too strong when you're like doing near work or like you're on the computer that's super uh, damaging. And that's actually, I think why a lot of people progress as they do and have to go back every year and get worse. It's because they're literally wearing glasses that are 20 times too strong most of the day. That is interesting. Generally when when people begin to lose their vision or I guess their vision becomes worse, they get better at seeing one side almost, right? So you either become nearsighted or farsighted. Um, Why is that because of the shape of the eye changing? So actually what happens is, um, with, with myopia specifically, um, what happens with myopes is the eye grows too long. Um, so that has to do with like the dopamine and the nitric oxide signaling in the eye. So that's why a main cause of myopia is actually the light environment. Um, because what happens is the sunlight and like regular light actually causes dopamine release, which stops the growth of the eye. So when you're like under artificial... Dopamine really stops the growth of the eye. Yeah. Wow. So when you're under artificial light, um, you're actually not getting the dopamine that the eye needs. And then that causes like elongation of the eye itself. Um, I definitely think there's like multiple factors in myopia, but light is like a really, really big one. Um, Especially like when you're under a lot of artificial light, um, it's missing... I like the violet part of the spectrum 
And that part of the spectrum is also really important for dopamine release in the eye. That is interesting. And myopia is both nearsightedness and farsightedness, correct? So myopia is just um, nearsightedness, meaning you can't see far away. Hyperopia is farsightedness, which means you can't see up close. And myopia is much more common than... Yes. It's like, honestly, becoming an epidemic. I think like 50% of the population is myopic at this point um, compared to like 20% in the the 70s. Yeah, I think it's pretty insane. I did a post today about braces and how I'm sure you've aware of this, how everyone needs braces. And I think it also, you would say it intimately connects to the the island. It's weird though, how these things are literally an epidemic, but because it's just snuck through so slowly that we haven't really paid attention to it, you know? Yeah, I definitely think, um, I mean, in optometry, like they're starting to kind of try to slow it, but they're mainly using things like, um, you know, prescription eye drops. So they use like basically a prescription eye drop. That's like a dilute version of pilocarpine. And they actually put that into the eye to slow uh, myopia. And that actually has a direct effect on the ciliary muscle. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of like what happens with the ciliary muscle when you're doing too much near work, the ciliary muscle kind of goes into a spasm where it's contracted for so long so that when you try to look far away again, it doesn't fully contract. Okay. Um, so that's why it's important every like 15, 20 minutes you're on the computer to look far away. And that kind of gets the ciliary muscle moving again and doesn't like lock it in um, that position. Gotcha. So that's, so if you guys see Taylor and I just looking into the space during the podcast, we're getting our, uh, 2020, 20 in. Yeah. <laughs> um, the ciliary muscle, the cil- oh, it controls the cilia, right? Which is basically a lens in the eye, kind of opens a shutter and how much light it allows in, correct? Um, so the ciliary muscle, yeah, that controls like the fle- how much the lens accommodates. Um, so you can kind of think of it as like the lens kind of has to change shape. So there actually is, this is pretty cool. When you dissect an eye, there's actually a lens inside the eye. And if you take that lens out, you could use it like on paper to like magnify things. That is wild. Yeah. So I remember when I saw that we were dissecting like a pig eye in school and I thought it was like the coolest thing ever. Like there's actually a lens in your eye that's magnifying things. Um, So the ciliary muscle kind of controls the shape of that. In your perspective, and I'm going to ask you a bad question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What do you, if there's going to be one cause for this huge myopia epidemic, do you think it's going to be largely nutritional? Like we're eating, let's say the vegetable oils. Do you think it's because we're staring at our screen all day? Do you think it's because of maybe let's say, we'll say three categories, nutritional, the actual, you know, distance. And then maybe the third one could be the blue light. Obviously it's some, probably some combination of all three, but what do you think is the. A lot of it is oxidative stress. And I think with the genetics, it's mainly because the genetics impact growth factors. So um, insulin-like growth factors, one. So I'm guessing like the mom's blood sugar regulation um, would really impact um, kind of like these hormones in the child. Um, So I definitely think, you know, the pregnancy, um, the mom's health, things like just like genetic um, toxicity that's passed down that all impacts the genes um, through epigenetics. 
So I definitely think, you know, that's big. When they say like, oh, it's genetic, Mm -hmm. it's more like, okay, like the mom's choices and people that came before the mom, the ancestors and all that, um, their choices are affecting the kid. So obviously if the mom's, you know, not eating a healthy diet, that's going to impact the hormones of the child. Um, So that's definitely a factor just because those hormones are all playing a role in eye growth uh, control, control of the growth of the eye. Um, so that's why like pathological myopia, which is like having like a minus six or higher prescription, um, that very much runs in families they find. Um, but another thing that plays a role is oxidative stress. So we know that hypoxia in the retina leads to myopia. Um, basically just because you need like good blood flow Um, And also they found like high polyunsaturated fats are also a cause of oxidative stress. So I definitely think, uh, you know, something like the mom's poofa intake could, you know, impact the development of myopia in children. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, to your question, what do I think impacts it the most? It's hard to say. Um, I definitely think it's like a combination of things like how much natural light they're getting. Are they like reading books all day or they're playing outside um, and then obviously like the mom's mm. diet and all of that, that gets passed down. But I think as the things that you can control are mainly just like the light environment and how you're using the eyes, um, how much near work you're doing, things like that. So do you think there is an air of truth to even before phones that, you know, the kid, the reading kids that wouldn't likely develop potentially nearsightedness just from constantly reading a book all day? Yeah, that's definitely a factor. I think they found like just playing outside for like two to three hours a day um, decreases myopia by like 50%. Wow. So yeah, that's definitely a big, big factor. Um, Like I explained before with the ciliary muscle getting stuck, um, that definitely impacts the growth of the eye as well. And then, uh, so astigmatism, which is I actually have astigmatism. I'll uh, almost a slightly myopic, but basically astigmatism is basic. Oh, what you said is it has postural origin. So it's from, I guess, one muscle being too tight, but it causes you to see everything kind of like a, how would you describe it? Yeah. Um, there's actually something you can look up online. It's called a, I'm blinking on the name of it, but there's like a little wheel you can look at it's called like an astigmatism wheel or something. Don't quote me on that. I'm blanking on the name of it. Um, but you can like look up this kind of like wheel thing. And if you look at it, you kind of look at which line is the darkest and whichever line is the darkest, that's like the angle of your astigmatism. So it's kind of like thinking of it like this. It's like the axis out, out of like a circle that which you see the best. Mm. So yeah, as you're talking about, it does reflect posture um, it's kind of like the scoliosis of the eye in a way. Um, just because when you leave that astigmatism correction in, it reinforces postural imbalances because the reason it develops is because of the posture. So basically, um, it's basically just having like a stronger prescription at just one angle. So for example, it's kind of like having like a weight strapped to one leg. So at some point your body is going to try to compensate for that somehow. So like, for example, if your body, if the signal that's going from like the occipital to um, the midbrain, for, which is responsible for vision, if that signal is making your body think that the head is tilted, 
and the eyes are going to compensate for that by uh, like having a shift. That is crazy. And well, one of the really cool things in occipital is the uh, eye part, part of the eye that relates to the back of the brain, correct? The occipital lobe. Basically, like the it's like the muscles at the base of the head. Oh, okay, okay, okay. I was thinking. So it's this. like the body posture in the spine sends information to the occipital muscles, and then that sends information to the midbrain about head posture. So if the mind thinks that the head is tilted, the eyes are going to compensate for that. Um, so an example of this would be like, a lot of people don't know this, but they have like a slight vertical misalignment with their eyes. And this is a sign of like head trauma or, you know, having a neck or shoulder injury. Mm-hmm. And the eyes will actually compensate for this. Um, and it just, it's good to get that fixed. You can fix that with like PRI um, or like a little bit of prism in the glasses. And when you fix that, um, the signal that goes from the eye to the brain is much more efficient. And so that causes like, let's say the person was having headaches or like eye strain. Um, that causes like a huge reduction in that. That is really fascinating. Yeah. So one of the things I took a PRI based course and it was really crazy. We had, uh, I took it in two parts. One of the things was in person and they had someone take their glasses off and they measured their mobility. Let's say like they'll do like external rotation and let's say they get to like here or and then internal rotation here and they put their glasses on and, and you could see them gain 15, 20, 30 degrees. They didn't do anything different. Just literally putting in a pair of glasses can completely change everything from there on down. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's insane. It's pretty cool how like much like because I guess vision, it's kind of like it can either like lock you up or it can like open up your whole like range of motion which is pretty cool how powerful that is so what is your perspective in that regard so if you correct your vision i know they do some like vision therapy in the higher up uh pri how do you correct let's say correct your vision and to correct your posture but then because you want to get back to a 2020 ideally right so how do you progress that or regress that are you talking about like how would you use like something like pri with glasses to fix the vision yeah okay yeah so honestly the whole pri thing it's still kind of new to me and i haven't like i obviously like i see what alina posts and everything but i haven't like done it in practice um, but from what I've seen, what she does is that she uses the prescription in the glasses. Like, so let's say the prescription in the glasses is totally wrong. Mm-hmm. That's going to make it really hard to fix their body posture. So she, what she tries to do is she tries to get them in like the right prescription. So that like frees their body up and allows them to like make changes in the posture. So I think it's more of like a dynamic thing where like, as you make changes in the glasses, you're able to change the posture. And then as you're able to change the posture, you probably are able to like gradually lower the glasses prescription. And it's vision is something that's constantly changing. So like the glasses that you're in probably like before fixing the posture isn't going to be the glasses that like you're always mm-hmm. going to need. But what I tell people that are like just starting out and they're, they're not doing like PRI or anything like that, I usually like for people to like gradually lower the prescription. Um, I... I'm not sure, like, I know that, like, I usually tell people if the stigmatism isn't big, just, like, take it out entirely. So let's say it's only, like, 0.5 astigmatism. Um, 
or even like 0.75 is still considered low astigmatism. So if you have anywhere from like zero to 0.75, you could probably just take that out because it's just reinforcing the postural insufficiencies. Um, but again, it's better to like have it tested with someone that can like test the body before just like changing the prescription entirely. But if people are just trying to like DIY it, um, that's usually what I recommend. Obviously, it would be better if they were working with someone with posture who could test the glasses on them. And then I usually say just like corrected to 2040, um, just because there's rarely times in life. I mean, to drive, you only need to be corrected to 2040. But um, there's not many times like in life where you really need 2020 correction. So most people are perfectly fine. Like they're still getting clear images um, and like they don't even notice that anything's not as clear as like it could be when they're wearing 2040. So usually you just say, okay, drop it down so that you're seeing 2040 and wear those for a little bit and then print out like an eye chart on your own and kind of just like track your progress. Most people do improve um, like little by little. So then once you would, you're improving in those glasses that you're seeing 2040 with, and you're getting back down to 2020 with them, then you could go ahead and drop it again. So it's kind of like trying to strengthen the eye muscles in that sense. Yeah. So you're kind of like teaching the eye muscles how to work again, because when you're wearing glasses, it's telling your eye, okay, like we don't have to work. Like we don't have to like change our user focusing muscles anymore because it's just like, Mm -hmm. it's just given to you. And so 2020 is more of a diagnostic tool than any real kind of rule, right? Because I guess you could have 2020, but does that mean you're going to have, like, does 2020 really mean you're going to have perfect vision or can you still have faulty vision, but pass a 2020 eye test? There's different things. So like you can have 2020 vision, but maybe your like contrast sensitivity is off and that wouldn't be picked up on the eye test. Mm. Um, so like visual contrast sensitivity is a good measure of um, something like mold toxicity or like biotoxin that's going to be affecting natural cells in the retina um, and causing like basically neurodegeneration. So if you have any neurodegeneration, that probably wouldn't be picked up on like a 2020 eye test. That's something that you would have to do like a visual contrast sensitivity for. And you can actually do that test for free online. It's called like the VCS test. Um, and that's basically just, it can also actually detect nutritional deficiencies as well. Oh, wow. Because so- um, it looks at like which parts of the contrast sensitivity spectrum you're deficient in. And based off of that, you can actually uh, test for some of the nutritional deficiencies as well. So what test do you usually run with your practice? Or not your practice, but your clients? I just do bioresonance testing. Um, which is done on just like a bioresonance machine, patient sends inherent saliva, and we test it against the whole database. Um, so basically that will tell me, you know, nutritional deficiencies, mineral imbalances, um, if there's any toxins that are impacting the eyes or the body. Um, and then I also test the clients against like certain remedies that might help them. And what does bioresonance actually mean? So bioresonance, so everything in the world has like a resonating frequency so a frequency that it resonates at um so like for example the frequency of a parasite every parasite is going to have a different frequency that it resonates at um the frequency of um, bacterial toxins or lime toxins um, everything is going to have a different frequency so the idea of it is that if you compare the body's um 
internal frequency to that organism and based off of how the body reacts to that will tell you whether or not that specific thing is affecting the body. Oh, that's really It's currently like stressing out the body in okay. a sense. And that's frequency as in, I mean, basically just vibration, right? The frequency at which it's vibrating. Yeah. And is that any different than, you know, the visual light spectrum where the, you know, certain colors vibrate at a certain frequency? It's a similar concept, I guess. How does that test actually work? Like if let's say I sign up for a bioresonance test, like what do I go and do? So basically you would just send in your hair and saliva. Um, it's done on like a quest for a bioresonance machine. And basically you put the hair and saliva on the machine and then it tests that you, you connect that to the computer and then it tests it against all the different uh, frequencies. And that you've said before that also allows you test for kind of like an HTMA, right? It gives you some sort of mineral I, analysis. I still like HTMA. I do like HTMA. Um, the difference between this and HTMA is that it will only bring up like the most pressing deficiencies that are impacting the body at this time. So for a given person, I'll probably see like one or two deficiencies pop up. And those are basically, it kind of works like peeling back layers of an onion. Mm -hmm. So those are the things that are like most important to work on now. Okay. But it's not going to tell you about like every, like HTMA would tell you, okay, this is like every level of every mineral deficiency. Um, I have seen it line up with HTMA. Like for example, for me on my HTMA, I have like, really high magnesium burn rate and like really low sodium. And when I did bioresonance, it came up magnesium high, which it is high, but it's like just because I'm burning through it quickly. So it's really low. Um, so it's similar to that. And like the person that's doing the test has to know how to interpret it. Um, and then also I came up as like sodium being low, which is the same as what it was on my HTMA. Um, so yeah, I definitely, I think it just brings up like the most pressing ones, like the things that are like most affecting your body at this time. The bioresonance mainly gives you nutritional information, right? So like, let's say mold or parasites or um, the toxicities or deficiencies. I like it as like a screening tool and like a first test for people to do um, because it just gives you like a really good like overall picture. So it gives you like hormones as well. Wow. But it will just pull up like the most, like like the lowest hormones or like the things that are like most out of balance. So like you'll see like a couple of hormones pop up, a couple of nutritional deficiencies pop up, um, food sensitivities, amino acid deficiencies. Um, it tells you like which body systems are the most stressed. So basically you just have to like use all of this. I kind of like it because it's kind of like a puzzle mm -hmm. where like you're kind of, you're not getting like every single hormone and like every single mineral, um, but you're kind of getting a really good overall picture and like putting the pieces together of um, what's going on. And then it also tests against, you know, that I like it because it's customizable. So let's say you really like XYZ supplement, you could test your clients against like that whole supplement line. Uh, which is cool because you can mean? like, so like you can basically see if, um, let's say like vitamin E, mm -hmm. um, you can basically see if vitamin E will help this person oh, wow. or if their bodies resonate or if like the body's imbalances are being fixed by, um, vitamin E, for example. Do people use bioresonance other than for, you know, what you do in terms of optometry? Yeah. So I actually like, I run two types of scans on it. 
they what's cool about it is that you can do like individual scans for like individual organs. So I specifically run the eye scan a lot mm. because a lot of my clients have eye problems, but I can also run like overall full body scans, um, which tells you like everything, like all the nutritional imbalances. Um, so like sometimes something will come up on a full scan or something will come up in an eye scan, but it didn't come up on the full scan. And that's just because it's affecting the eyes more than is the whole body. Um, so for example, like vitamin C, I see that come up like all the time in eye scans, but it won't always show up on like the full body scan. Um, and that's because the eye actually needs like four times the amount of vitamin C that the rest of the body needs. Um, just because the eye is subject to so much oxidative stress since it has like such a high uh, metabolic rate. So you need a lot more glutathione, you need a lot more vitamin C actually in the vitreous. Um, and that's actually protecting the eye against like everything from like light exposure to, um, just oxidative stress in general. Yeah. It's also interesting in the regards that like the eye, you've said this bunch, but that the eye is literally part of the brain. It's part of the same formation. So it's cool that you get that window into the whole body through the eye. Yeah. It's really cool. Um, something that I find really interesting is how like they're finding that you can diagnose Alzheimer's in the eye before it shows up in the brain. Yeah. And that's just because the eye is like the only part of the body that you can see into without having to cut, like see into the blood vessels without cutting the body open. So why do you think the eye is uh, evolved, is the only organ that takes in oxygen from the external environment? Because it, it does so through the, was it through the pupil? Yeah. So the, um, it does take like for your cornea to get oxygen, it's mainly just from the outside environment. Um, uh, the back of the eye does have like other ways it gets oxygen, but the cornea specifically can pretty much only get oxygen wow. from the outside environment. Um, and so that's why just like something like wearing contacts causes like hypoxia because it's, it's a little bit of hypoxia because you're still going to get like, they say like 98, 99% oxygen transmission, depending on what lens you're wearing, but it still is creating a hypoxic condition for the eye because the eye is not getting as much oxygen as it should be getting. Um, so yeah, that's one of the reasons why I don't love contact lenses. Which brings up a great transition. What are the issues? Let's, we'll start with contact lenses. Um, and, and like, what are the pros as well? Just so that people can get a full, better understanding of them. The downside is that most of them do block UV light, uh, except the daily total one brand. They don't block UV light, which is good. Um, it also kind of alters the surface of the eye. So that alters like how the eyes interacting with light. Um, it has, they found that it changes the eye microbiome. So that does make you kind of like more susceptible to like bacteria, viruses, mold, which the eyes are like always exposed to the environment. Um, so that is one of the downsides. Um, yeah, I would say the, the plus sides to contacts is that if you have like a really high prescription, uh, glasses kind of interfere with the peripheral vision. So it does give you better uh, peripheral vision than glasses. And then the other downside is that you can't take them off the eye. So like when you're wearing glasses, um, it's pretty cool. Cause like, let's say you're doing your work and you don't have a super high prescription. You can just like take the glasses off entirely. Um, and that's much more relaxing for your eyes. And it's not going to give you like eye strain mm. and cause like an increase in your myopia. Okay, cool. So I really think it depends, you know, on the person. And if someone's like wearing contacts all day, 
um, and they're, they're a low myope. I definitely think it's better to wear, you know, glasses because then you can take them off when you're doing your work. I try to only wear them when I'm doing like a sport and I need to be able to yeah, see on a That dime. makes sense. Yeah. I personally only wear contacts when I'm skiing. There you go. That's what I wear. Uh, it's like, <laughs> yeah, I'm skiing. I feel like it's, it's worth it. And like, you're not like habitually wearing them. I definitely think for like sports or maybe you have like an event that you want really like want to go to and don't want to wear glasses. I think uh, they're really good for that. Glasses are cool looking though. Um, <laughs> yeah. what, what are the downsides to glasses? So with glasses, a lot of the downside to it is that there's an optical center in every pair of glasses, right? So that optical center is the only point on the glasses where you have perfectly clear vision. Um, so if you look away from that optical center, you might experience some distortion. Um, so in that sense, glasses are kind of like visual confinement because they kind of train your eye to only look through that one point on the glasses, especially something like progressive lenses where you can only see, um, at a certain distance when you're looking through that part of the lens, because how progressives or bifocals work is they have different prescription depending on where you look in the glass. So um, that kind of restricts the eye movement and the eye movement is super important for like brain processing. So you'll notice um, when you ask like anyone a question, for example, their eyes kind of like move in different ways. So like, let's say you're like to someone like, oh, what's your birthday? They might kind of look up and to the right when they're thinking. So eye movements are actually a way that we like process information. That's really cool. Um, especially, yeah, especially like emotional things like that as well. So in that sense, if you're like confining the eyes to not moving in a natural way, you're also kind of putting like constraints on like brain I'm like thinking and processing and all that. I think I heard you mention this actually this morning. Uh, was it the non rapid eye movement sensitization or non rapid eye movement? Yeah. That's uh, so, and yeah. basically they just like kind of draw, make you look around, right? Uh, and it helps to allow you to re release certain, like get out of par into the parasympathetic state. Yeah. So I haven't actually done EMDR. EMDR. Um, but it stands for like eye movement um, desensitization reprocessing, I think. So basically that's a way to like release traumas, um, by like looking at the eye movements. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it is crazy. I heard Bessel van der, van der Kolk mention it in his book. He said, he yeah, very a lot useful. of people like swear by it. I think it works by kind of like distancing you from the trauma. Mm. So it makes, um, it allows you to like look at it from afar and kind of like not associate yourself with it as much. Interesting. I would have thought that it would be more so related to helping you to process the trauma in your head, I guess, while you're taking out of the sympathetic state because it's forcing you into like a more of a parasympathetic state by looking all around. Yeah, that's also uh, probably part of it as well because I know when you get into like fight or flight, you're just focused on your like your central vision and you lose the periphery. Um, so another way to kind of like retrain the nervous system and get back into like a, a parasympathetic state is actually to like learn how to like use your peripheral vision again, because most people just like are so overly focused on central vision because that's what we need for survival. Mm. So, um, 
I like this technique. It's called open focus, but it's kind of like a different way of looking at the world where you're like inviting the periphery in and you're not too heavily focused on the central. Um, and this actually like gets your nervous system to like calm down. So that's a pretty cool technique. I like, what is the technique? It's called open focus. Oh, okay. And, and just- it's basically just like, it's basically just like inviting the periphery into your field of vision. So instead, like when you're like looking at a house, for example, um, you're not paying attention to what's directly in front of you. You're paying attention to what's on the side of you. Interesting. Do you think that glasses, um, in that respect can force you more into the pair or the sympathetic because it's forcing you to look forward and it's kind of, I would imagine it's kind of blocking your periphery, right? Yeah. So glasses do block peripheral vision. That's a downside as well. So yeah, they can kind of like make you more in like a sympathetic state just because you're, you're not able to see the periphery as well. Same thing with like hats also. Oh really? I know Alina, Alina was talking about that today. She was saying how like hats, I mean, once like this, they cut off your peripheral vision. Um, so she doesn't like them from like a movement perspective. Do you test people for how they look through the periphery? Is there a way to do that? Or you kind of just assume that everyone's just dominating through the central vision? I think if you're perceptive, you can pretty much tell, like if you like, if you practice open focus, for example, you can pretty much tell, like if you're only focusing on your central, because you can like, physically notice a very big difference like when you switch Mm. um so yeah that's one way to tell and then you can also just do a visual field test so a lot of myopes have like actually have visual field defects Um, and i do see visual field defects come up on bioresonance scans from time to time um so whenever i see visual field defects come up i just know that you know they're in fight or flight because they're not like inviting the periphery in um but yeah, mostly um, it is common in myopes to have like actually like a peripheral visual field defect so that they wouldn't even notice. Can you elaborate on like what a peripheral vision defect would be or a visual visual defect would be? So if you, um, you can actually test your own peripheral vision. So if you have like a finger like this and you're kind of just like bringing it towards your eye, mm-hmm. your visual field, you'll notice it come in there's like a point where like you finally see it. That's how we like test. That's like a kind of like a poor man's visual field test. (laughs) Because looking straight though, but like having over here. You're looking straight and you're bringing the finger in from the periphery. Interesting. Yes. And then you'll, you'll see it at some point. And then how close it gets is a good sense of, yeah, I guess you could measure like a foot away would be some kind of measurable test. It would mainly be like the angle. So oh. I think it's like every part of the visual field has a different like, I think it's like 100 degrees when it's like this way or like, I don't know, I forgot the exact numbers, but like I think from the top, it's like you have 100 degrees or there's different like degrees that you have on like each side of the visual field. Very interesting. But um. You wouldn't be able to like get a good sense if you're doing it on yourself. Um, you would actually probably have someone have to do it for you. Basically, you would like cover one eye and they would like slowly like bring the fingers down okay. and you would say like, okay, I see it. Okay, I see it. So that's like a way that like your eye doctor screens for visual field. But if you really want to get a good sense of the visual field, you do have to do like a visual field test at like an eye doctor's office. 
Gotcha. Man, I've looked into that. I'm a huge klutz. And basically, that's just like that's just like pressing a button when you see a black dot. Oh, really? But it's like all automated. Interesting. Yeah, yeah I'm a huge klutz, so I think my periphery might be uh, a little messed up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the only way to tell would just be to get a visual field test on an eye doctor. You would probably have to have the right chief complaint if you want that covered <laughs> by insurance. Good to know. <laughs> Um, do you You'd probably have to be like, Oh, my, per- my peripheral vision is, uh, is I keep, not, is, keep walking walls. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? No, I'm just joking. No, usually I'm more of a, like a trip on a cord that I'm not paying attention to, but I'm always, a, oh, okay. I'm always, uh, very, uh, animated. So I'm, I'm very, usually pretty focused on something else, but maybe that's cause I'm sympathetic dominant. Um, Got it. Okay. Hopefully not though. I'm pretty, pretty chill. I think (laughs) back to, so I had a postural question. So I know we have, uh, I actually know this from shooting guns. It's the only reason I learned that we all have a a eye dominance. Yeah. Um, and so the way you can tell uh, the way I learned is like you focus, you put, put a triangle with your hands and focus on an object and whichever eye you bring it back to. So I'm left eye dominant, which sucks because I'm a righty. Yeah. (laughs) Uh-huh. How do you find, do you, find, do you use that test frequently? Is it useful to you? And then um, second part, do you find that in regards to the dominance, do people typically have better vision in their dominant eye compared to their non-dominant eye? Yeah, for sure. I'm personally, I'm bright eye dominant. And yeah, you can do that test where like you center something in the triangle and then you bring it towards your eye. And whichever side you go toward is like your dominant eye. But you have to like kind of do it without thinking about it mm. or else you can kind of mess up the results. But yeah, I'm like super right eye dominant and my right eye does have better vision. So yeah, I definitely think uh, that's true. Like whatever eye you're kind of dominant in, um, you tend to have better vision in it because you rely on it more. So anything that you rely on more, you're strengthening the neural pathways in, and you're going to develop them better. So yeah, I, I definitely notice that with people like, if you're right eye dominant, you definitely most likely have better vision in your right eye. And most people that are right eye dominant actually use their right hand. Really? That's interesting. Um, I'm right. So yeah, most dominant. people are right eye dominant. Yeah. Interesting. Um, do you have people work on their left eye more than, or their non-dominant eye? I'm sure like that would kind of be similar concept to like, you know, they say like brush your teeth with your, op- with your non-dominant hand. Cause that strengthens like new neural pathways. Um, so I definitely think, yeah, if you like close, if you put like an eye patch on your right eye for part of the day, um, that might actually help strengthen the left eye. That's actually what they do when like kids have like amblyopia or something They do patching. So they'll actually like patch the good eye so that they can like make the bad eye work harder because what happens is if you have amblyopia and that basically means like you can't get to 2020 in one of your eyes, um, so let's say that like your left eye is amblyopic and that eye is like 2040, for example, it can't get to 2020. Um, you would patch the good eye for like two hours a day, for example. And that would kind of force, um, the bad eye to work. And when you're forcing the bad eye to work harder, that strengthens it and helps you form like new, like neural connections. And then last but not least in terms of the uh, eyewear, what's the issue with sunglasses? Yeah, sunglasses is interesting. It's a big, like, hot topic right now. Everyone's like, you know, sunglasses, um, they kind of, they're not good for you, blah, blah, blah. But I kind of, 
I think that there's definitely some benefit in certain situations, but I've come to realize. But like, for example, like in the morning when you're out trying to get morning sun, that's when it's like super important not to wear them. Um, but if you're like on a beach on a hot summer day and your like skin is at risk of getting burned, there might be some times when like you could argue that there's more benefit um, compared to like detriment. So I definitely think wearing them all the time for majority of people is not a good idea <laughs> just because um, what happens is when your UV light actually helps the eye generate oxygen and UV light has a big impact on easy water creation in the eye. And the eye is like 80% water, but it's not just like any type of water. It's like gel water. Mm-hmm. So that's like the fourth phase of water. If you ever looked into that yeah. where it's like, yeah. So basically um, you need UV light to keep that water like in its gel state and actually when it starts to break down and it starts to get less easy and more liquid, um, that's when people start to get floaters, things like that. Wow. For the listeners, the easy water, it's like you're talking about Gerald Pollock's work, right? And uh, yeah, uh, basically it's like the egg yolk or is the way I describe it. It's basically how all the water, it's, it's water, but it all sticks together. And that's because largely from the energy production, everything binding the proteins together to form this gel like material that is the essence of life in and of itself, I would say, in my opinion. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> um, and it, it, it's really interesting that I, so that's probably why the eye is so, such a good sign for other parts of your health, right? Because it's so energy dependent, even compared to a lot of other organs. So the eye actually needs like so much more energy. It has like so many more mitochondria. There's actually specialized mitochondria in the lens, actually. So I've heard from people that like when they stopped wearing sunglasses, they actually, and they started getting more natural light. They didn't need reading glasses anymore. Really? Um, because they were actually strengthening the mitochondria in their, in the lens of their eye by getting more, um, natural light and getting more, uh, UV light into the eye. So that actually like helped their vision a lot. And they were like in their sixties and they didn't need reading glasses, which is pretty cool. That is cool. Cause your age at which you start to need reading glasses actually predicts longevity. So most people start to kind of need reading glasses at the age of like 40 or so. Um, just because their mitochondria is just in decline. Um, That's a crazy so the longer that you can like, yeah, the longer that you can like delay the need for reading glasses, the longer you're pretty much going to live, which is pretty cool. That is awesome. So, so yeah, the natural light is like a big factor in that because the, they've actually found that the lens in the eye has specialized mitochondria. Why, what is they different from regular mitochondria? Do you know? Um, it doesn't differ in any way from regular mitochondria. It's just cool that the eye have like specialized mitochondria. It's basically described in this one article as like, you have like tiny lenses, like the mitochondria function as like tiny lenses in the eye. Oh, wow. That is, there's a really cool article on it. I could send you later. I would love that. So is there any truth to, I guess you were, you were saying there is a little bit of truth to what I haven't asked yet, um, to the, 
sun causing, you know, ocular melanoma or like what is there a level of light that we shouldn't exceed or should we generally be trying to kind of build a callus so you can, you know, don't wear sunglasses all the time so you can go into relatively bright lights? So I think it's the same thing with like the sunscreen debate. There's people that are like, never wear sunscreen ever, like whatever. I personally am under the belief that like you should never want to burn your skin. And it's the same thing with the eyes. Like you never want to burn the eyes. So I would personally only wear sunscreen in certain situations. Like if let's say I was like, I'm used to like the sun in New York, which is like not strong at all. Let's say I went on vacation to Mexico. I would have to kind of like build up a solar callus so like while I was building up a solar callus, I would use like a more natural sunscreen that has like zinc oxide or something like that and not like all the chemicals. Um, and just kind of use that until you like build up a base and like slowly, like depending on where you are. Um, and also your skin tone depends a lot about that. So like personally, I have fair skin, so I can't just like go to the tropics and like mm. not wear sunscreen. <laughs> um if I was like in New York for like the entire year and not like building up to that. So I think it's the same thing with sunglasses. Um, I also think like you can have like a better sunglass. So the problem with sunglasses is that it heavily distorts the light spectrum and you're like, you're just cutting out the UV and you need the UV light to produce melanin in the skin and also like melanin production in the eyes. So basically, um, what happens is you're going to be more likely to get a burn also because the pupil is not going to constrict as much. And so that's actually letting more light in, which is what you don't want to do. Um, so then that's another problem with it. So I think a moderate, a moderate version, like I would kind of wish they made these, but if someone made like sunglasses that only block 50% of the UV light, of the UV light the problem is they all block hundred percent. So you'd want them to block 50% of the UV light and then have a neutral gray tint that blocks 50% of the visible light. That way it's more of an even spectrum. Um, so the gray tint would block like all the visit, all the parts of the visible light spectrum. So that way it could be like a more like moderate version of sunglasses where it's not just like totally cutting out all UV light and heavily distorting the visual spectrum. Let's say theoretically, um, you and I are relatively fair skin. I've actually noticed since I, and I completely agree with you on the pretty much everything you said. Um, uh, I like to, I'll put use coconut oil, but I'm generally just a fan of saying tan, try not to burn basically. Uh, do you think there's any, you know, let's say maybe you're, you don't have blue eyes like we do, or you have darker eyes. Is there a point that we can all adapt to? You think that let's say we go live in the tropics for the next 10 years, we'll, that will be fine without sunglasses or do you think we'll probably always need a little bit of protection sometimes maybe it peaks on i think yeah that's a hard question i feel like just the fact that people with dark eyes have so much more melanin Mm -hmm. is like super protective right so there is like a low level of melanin synthesis in the adult human eye but it's probably not enough to like grant you the same amount of protection that like someone with like dark eyes or dark skin has um So, yeah, I mean, that's a tough question, but I would say probably not just based off like genetics and like how much innate protection you have, because the more innate protection you have from the sun depends largely on your genetics um, and largely like where, you know, you're supposed to be living based off, you know, your, your genetics. Um, So, yeah, I think that 
everyone is going to need like a, everyone is going to have a different sweet spot for like the amount of sun that they need. And people with darker skin obviously have much, much higher demands. Um, so I think it really just depends on the person and like what their sweet spot is. And so that's hard to like say like, okay, every person with light skin needs yeah. X amount of sun. Yeah. So on the flip side, do you think blue eyes and maybe green as well are an evol- evolutionary adaptation akin to paler skin to allow more UV light in and higher cl- uh, latitudes? Uh, yeah, pretty much. That's cool. That's how it works. And um, it's interesting because people with light skin and light eyes, they're so much more prone to like macular degeneration. And like one of the recommendations, you know how like UV light spreads lipofuse skin? You mean blue, blue light or UV light completely? UV light okay. actually spreads lipofuscin. So I think, um, you know, they tell people with macular degeneration, like always wear sunglasses, for example. Um, and that's because I guess because they're just genetically not supposed to get as much sun. It doesn't mean, mean that like they don't need UV yeah. light. It just means that they need less of it. Right. So in a way, um, when you have like a buildup of polyunsaturated fatty acids because they get that buildup in part because they don't have as much melanin because melanin, what it does is it kind of protects against um, iron induced oxidative stress and heavy metal induced oxidative stress. So the heavy metals combine with oxygen, PUFA and estrogen. And when all those things combine and then the UV light spreads that, so the UV light definitely plays a role, but it's about having like the right amount of it and not like overdoing it. Because it's almost like melanin and lipofuscin in some sense are the opposite sides of the same coin, right? They're both kind of electron sinks trying to absorb energy. But one is, one is like I guess our ability. It's the lipofuscin is bad because it's a it's an overboard mechanism. We can't absorb enough, and the melanin is a protective mm-hmm. mechanism to allow us to absorb more. The callus, you'd say. Yeah, it's interesting. So really what, interesting. for yeah, us blue-eyed I, folk, what do you recommend, what's your protocol for, you know, not getting too much UV? Um, I, I basically go on like my skin, like however your skin's reacting is going to tell you a lot about how your eyes are going to be reacting. Yeah. So like if I'm out at the beach, I mean, I know it's hard to like figure out like, am I going to burn from this? Am I not? But if I'm out at the beach and I see I'm getting too much color, that would probably just be my point where I would just like leave. Like I wouldn't try to like, like overexpose myself. Um, but yeah, there's no like one protocol that I would say like, this is exactly like when you need to wear sunglasses. I mean, you don't, I think you just have to have like good judgment. Um, look at how your skin's reacting and things like that. Um, and always, I mean, if I'm at the beach, I'm usually always like wearing a hat or like a wide brim hat or something like that um, when I'm not wearing sunglasses, um, just because I, I do like to like protect my face a little bit more from the sun. Um, so yeah, that's typically what I'll do is like, let's say I'm at the beach, I'll probably only go for like a couple of hours. And I also look at like the D-Minder app. I don't know if you had that app, but based off like how much like vitamin D I'm getting, mm-hmm. I can also tell like okay, this is like enough for me yes. pretty much. Like I got enough vitamin D for the day. I don't need to like bake in the yeah. sun all day. Would you assume that would also increase as well? Like over time as you get more tan and all of a sudden you'd have less of an issue spending more time at the beach? Yeah, that's pretty much how it works. So you can like build up a tolerance to the sun as well. And even um, like end of the summer, you're not going to have 
I personally don't like burn if it's like the end of the summer and I already have like a pretty good base tan. Yeah. I find myself that since like becoming a Peter and getting more saturated fat, I burn a lot less easily too and tan much more easily. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Definitely notice like they say like take vitamin E before you go out in the sun. Um, I even think like something like chaga, which has a lot of melanin, uh, that can also protect you from the sun. Um, I think like Ray Pete says like aspirin too, right? Yeah. Niacinamide as well, I believe. Niacinamide. Um, and then also red light therapy. So if you like do red light therapy before you go out in the sun, that can be protective as well. Yeah. I'm definitely going to ask you a couple questions about that, but, um, do you, I was just going to ask, um, the, oh, so even though we're blue eyed individuals don't have a lot of melanin in our eyes, is there still a, a degree of melanin and that probably increases as well? Do you just can't really see it as much compared to a darker eyed individual? Um, so there is a, from what I've read, there's a low level of melanin synthesis. So you can like make more melanin. Okay. Um, so it's like everyone has the same, I think, number of melanocytes, but how much melanin they make is what's different. Oh, interesting. Between like blue and brown eyes. And so I heard you say this and I think, um, not to pit anyone against each other. I think Huberman said the opposite. So Huberman said we don't have any photoreceptors in our skin. I thought I heard you a while back oh, say so the opposite. Really? Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. So we actually do have photoreceptors in the skin. Um, we just don't know as much about them, if that makes sense. So it's hard to say, like, we have photoreceptors in the skin and the eyes, but we obviously have way more in the eyes. Yeah. So that's why, like, there's this whole debate about, like, um, how sunglasses, like, prevent this is what I'm not sure about actually. So they say like, if you're wearing sunglasses, you're not going to produce as much vitamin D, for example, um, because you need melanin. I'm sorry. You need sunlight in the eyes to produce, uh, to secrete melanocyte stimulating hormone, which uh, secretes melanin. So the question is, is like, is there enough um, photoreceptors on the skin to actually because photoreceptors on the skin also have to do with how much vitamin d you produce as well so since you have so many more like you know receptors in the eye photoreceptors in the eye wouldn't that wouldn't you think that would play a much bigger role in vitamin d production than the ones that are on the skin yeah that, I guess but I'm, other than answer that question i'm not sure yeah I so it's like how much sense. would it affect uh, how much would it affect vitamin d production is the question i know it definitely does affect it just because you have so many more photoreceptors in the eye. Um, but you also do have them on the skin as well. I always thought that vitamin D production was mostly from activating uh, the cholesterol pathway. So like the sun kind of activated the cholesterol pathway, but maybe I'm confusing that with something else. Uh, I'm sure they... No, it does. That That is another another aspect of it too. Okay. So I, the skin does play a big role as well. But it's like the question is like how much do the eyes play a role in that? Do you think the um, the sunglasses could also inhibit your ability to produce the melanin, the MSH, mel melanocyte simulating hormone, which Simulating could interfere hormone. with your, what is it? Uh, with production of vitamin D. Uh, I was thinking uh, with melanin too, though, which is, would that also f interfere with your tan potentially? Yeah. So that would interfere with like how much melanin the skin is producing. Okay. In terms of, so one of the practices that I really think is interesting in terms of the like sunblock argument is that a lot of the, like, uh, 
tribes, the tropical tribes back in the day would use coconut oil, which I think is really interesting because you're also going to topically absorb a lot of that saturated fat. So in general, what are you, your thoughts on the unsaturated fats versus the saturated fats for eye health? So I'm kind of under the belief that everyone has a different kind of like amount that they need. Um, and I think it also depends on like your genetics. So they've actually found, I think that like darker skinned individual, I think would need more than lighter skinned individual For or the, can tolerate more. Yeah. Um, but lighter skinned individual, I think have a harder time with the pupas. Interesting. I would have thought it was the opposite. Um, I don't know. I think they've actually found that like African descent convert pufas better. Like okay. they more efficiently convert pufas um, to long chain pufas. And then the long chain pufas um, that converted into like the messengers. Okay, that's hormones. Um, yeah, so basically my thoughts on it are that some people, depending on where you're from, are going to need more. Some people are going to need less based on genetics. Um, there's actually like a specific gene. Uh, what is that gene? I think I have it written down somewhere. But I recently worked, it's interesting you bring this up because I recently worked with a client that has Bietti's crystalline dystrophy. And this is actually an overload. It's like a PUFA overload in the mitochondria that causes this uh, person with this disease to lose vision. Um, and the reason they lose vision is because they have a mutation in this gene. And this is the gene that helps convert PUFAs. Oh, so wow. because they have this mu gene mutation, they literally can't convert PUFAs into like usable energy. So it builds up as like these crystals in the retina and that makes their vision decline. Um, so anyway, that's why I say, I think there is a big genetic component. Like if someone has like a gene mutation and they can't use that, uh, fatty acid for fuel, then it's just going to build up in the retina. Is that similar to, um, but it was interesting. It's very similar. So it's basically like, what I realized with this person is like, this person shouldn't have like any has should have like as little proof as in their diet as possible because of this genetic mutation. But you would never know they had this genetic mutation if they weren't losing their vision. Mm. Um, the reason is because this gene is heavily expressed in the retina. So even though this gene affects like different parts of the body, like the brain, the lungs, the liver, they're not going to be like having problems in those organs, which is super interesting because those organs have like other mechanisms, I guess. Wow. But the retina doesn't. Um, so I found that like condition just like super interesting. And it's a really rare condition. It's like an autosomal recessive uh, progressive retinal disease. Um, but that just like made me realize like how much I think genetics play a role um, in how people process like different fatty acids. And the interesting part was that on that person's scan, um, they came up as low in ALA which is a fatty acid. And like, if someone's looking at that, they could be like, oh, like if you don't know like anything about their history, you could be like, oh, this person needs more. Like this person needs more of this, but it's actually the opposite because <laughs> if they have more of it, it's just going to build up more because they just literally can't process it. That's one of the things I'd like to dive into more of the H heritage mineral analysis and maybe bioresonance. I think it's those tests, are diagnostic tools are so interesting, so useful. Yeah, it's super interesting how um, that comes out for people. And then I was also just like asking her, like, 
yeah like how's your like fat digestion and all that like do you experience like floating stools and do you have high triglycerides specifically and she was like yeah I have high triglycerides and um those are like some ish some signs that like you're not metabolizing uh fat properly yeah that makes sense so high triglycerides things like floating stools free fatty acids um, as well yeah that would be another one okay. that would indicate something like that on blood work um but yeah, it's just I was like, yeah, and this person is taking like cod liver oil. I think I was like, no, maybe not for you. <laughs> maybe yeah. not for you. Yeah. Speaking of slightly unsaturated, <laughs> I think they're fatty acids, almost technically. Uh, what are your thoughts on the carotenoids? I know everyone's talking about them. Uh, the carrot a day for eye health. I think that was kind of propaganda from World War II. But the like, astaxanthin and the lutein and well, I forget what the third one is, but. Zeoxanthin. And the scary part about those is that they're putting like weird iterations of them. Like they're putting like mesoxanthin in supplements now. And that's one that's like barely found in the retina. Like they found it in the retina, but it's not even one that you can like get from food. So it's like a metabolite that's like made, but like, how do you know if that's good or bad? Yeah. So it's like really sketchy. I don't know. I personally wouldn't supplement with them. Um, I think like, even like getting them from egg yolks is fine. Like if anything, I would just like work on strengthening uh, melanin because that's going to be more protective than the carotenoids anyway. I think one of the most interesting things I've heard you say in my uh, research was that the whole point of consuming the carotenoids is that you want it to convert to retinol, to the retinoids, I guess, retinoic acid. So why, yeah, why so, do they not um, recommend just eating more like I why is the mainstream I health say oh let's slam these carotenoids instead of the the actual product it doesn't really make sense especially because like if you're getting too many carotenoids it can like suppress thyroid function which will suppress conversion right yeah so it depends a lot on like the health of your liver and a lot of people don't have healthy enough livers to convert um so like if you can't do the conversion I think those things, especially combined with blue light, it's just going to create oxidative stress. Wow. Yeah. So I wouldn't have it be like me focus. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, like also in order for um, vitamin A to get to the eye, something needs to happen in the liver and zinc is super important for that. So um if you're getting too much of the carotenoids and you're just like driving down your liver function, you're not going to be able to get as much usable vitamin A to the eye as well. Good to know. So um, it's going to like also prevent you from like using like the vitamin A that you do have. That makes sense. Yeah. That I think that's so interesting. People just love to, and I'm not trying to uh, be negative, but I don't know. I think sometimes like the really cool names, like the uh, Axaxanthin, people are like, oh, like this, this is Axaxanthin. Sorry. <laughs> Thank you. This is uh, like, this is such so cool. It'll help my eye health. Like all the like BPC 157, it just sounds, you know, magical. And, and people just gravitate towards the, these things instead of, oh, beef liver. Like you want like something that your body can actually use and not something that's going to be like, okay, it's there in small amounts, like Mm -hmm. in small amounts, it's helpful. And like when you're getting it from food, but if you're trying to supplement it, it's just, it's really risky in my opinion, because these are like high amounts of these things. And like, we're only getting like very small amounts from food. So that makes sense. I think that's great 
two cents to have. So nutritionally and our supplementally, <laughs> what are your big things um, for your clients that you try? I mean, obviously it's going to be N of one, a little different person to person, but in general, what are your guidelines? Like the most common deficiencies I see for the eye specifically, um, I see a lot of low vitamin C specifically. Um, that one comes up quite a bit. Um, I see calcium coming up quite a bit, either low or high. Um, iron tends to come up sometimes. Uh, copper comes up mm, quite a bit, I would say. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really like so bio-individual. Um, but yeah, vitamin C is the main one. I think that's probably the one I see the most, vitamin C being low. What about um, vitamin E? People just needing more of that. Um, I don't see that one coming up too much, actually, surprisingly. I wonder if that one's not as active in the eyes because it's so much so watery compared to some of the other tissues that have a lot more fat since it's fat. Soluble. I know that like the, yeah, that's probably true. I know that the main um, antioxidants in the eye are vitamin C and glutathione. Which is a precursor to vitamin C, I think, right? Mm-hmm. I know a lot of people are, I see a lot of people resonate with like taurine eye drops. Uh, which is not surprising because taurine is like so important for eye health. Um, also the liver Yeah. and the eyes are like so interconnected with the liver. Um, oh, magnesium. I see magnesium coming up a ton. Okay. When do you, um, and I think it's because like when you don't have enough magnesium, you, the blood vessels can't relax enough. Oh, and I see zinc coming up a lot too. Um, so I think because like the blood vessels aren't relaxed enough, you can't get as much like blood flow and nutrition to the eye. When do you recommend a, let's say taurine or just in general, a supplemental eye drop versus a food supplement? For my clients, I mainly just look at like what they're resonating with. It also depends on like how old you are, because I know like taurine like really declines with age. Um, so like if you're like young and healthy, uh, it's probably not necessary. Um, I think it just like depends on the person, what they're, what they're going to need. Um, but yeah, I basically just go on like, if they're resonating with it, I recommend it for them. Resonating as in feeling good or as in bioresonance? In the, like on the testing that I do. Okay. Yeah. So if, if it comes up for them as like, it's balancing them out. Um, I usually do recommend it. Um, but I, I do see like tarin come up on full scans as well. And I think like a magnesium tarate supplement uh, can be really good. Why would you go for eye drops versus like a supplement though? Oh, so if they're specifically having eye problems, um, and that's when I would go for the eye drop. Okay. If you're not specifically having eye problems, I, I wouldn't bother with it. I would just do like... Oral. And let's say you see someone with a liver issue and they need more taurine. Do you ever see that also just benefit their eye out of just the relation between the two? You can like help the eyes by doing oral too. Um, by doing the eye drop, it's just like a better delivery method, like straight to the eye pretty much. That makes sense. Um, so yeah. What are the most connected? Also, um, oh, go on. Also, um, I think with eye drops, it's, better for like targeting the central nervous system. It's the same thing with like glutathione. Like if you do like a glutathione na- thione nasal spray, that's going to be better, like better, better for the eyes than like taking it orally. Okay. Um, just because that's going to have more of an effect on the central nervous system. Right so I brain. think just like, 
nasal sprays um, are also a better way to target the eyes as well. Just because it's going straight through the brain, you think, and just closer? Um, just because it's getting like absorbed. Yeah, it's getting absorbed. Like it's going to go more to the brain and the eyes. Um, like, for example, like nebulizing, like I've nebulized like methylene blue, for example. And that has like a way more effect on me than like taking it orally in terms of like, um, like it actually brought my spell back after I had the C word. <laughs> <laughs> I might have to try that. I haven't, haven't really gotten my smell back. It's been a, been a while. Oh, seriously? It's not, oh, I can wow. smell, yeah. but it's not as strong as it used to be. Not as strong. Yeah. It was crazy. Like, I think I nebulized it like two or three times or maybe it was like the second time I nebulized it. Like and my smoke came back right after that. Wow. Nebulizing means uh, putting it, it's like a, you breathe it, right? Yeah. You're breathing it in. Yeah. Okay. That's so that's cool. just going to target the central nervous system better. What are the most common organs you see connected with eyes? I mean, obviously uh, everything. Definitely but... liver, liver and gallbladder. Definitely. And then just like, if ever like the HPA axis is coming up, like hypothalamus, pituitary, adrenals, um, just like if someone's under a ton of stress, that's usually going to be affecting the eyes because the eyes are actually one of the first organs to start degenerating. So it's actually one of the first places that we see aging um, in the body. So just people that are under a ton of stress, that's usually something that definitely affects the eyes, um, especially because the eyes are so sensitive to changes in cortisol. There's actually an eye condition from high cortisol that causes like swelling in the macula. So like fluid basically accumulates in the macula. Um, and it's mainly typically seen in like high stress males. Hmm. And it has to do with like the male hormones and how that's like interacting with cortisol. Wow. So that's why that one is, it's called a uh, central serous retinopathy. And usually what happens is like, you know, they come in, their vision's down um, you take like a scan of the macula and you just see like swelling there. And it's like the, there's just like an increase in fluid in the macular area. And then it usually goes down in like a month or two. Um, but what happens is this can also be steroid induced because we know like what steroids do to cortisol and blood sugar. Um, so if it's steroid induced, it's harder to reverse than if it's like stress induced. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting hearing so much about the holistic approach and how so much is connected. Like, it's almost crazy to think. I guarantee there's some connections that we probably just haven't seen in the literature yet between reproductive health, because you know typically that's one of the first things to fail, and ocular health that are probably so interrelated that we can you know either see through the eyes or things like that. There's a lot of changes that actually happen to the eyes during pregnancy. Oh, really? Like, uh, yeah, like people's prescriptions like totally change, and then they go back to normal once they give birth. In a um, beneficial and then, way, usually? It just, like, it just changes. Like, they'll, sometimes they'll get more myopic just because, like, the hormones impact the vision so much. Um, like, the estrogen, the progesterone, all that impacts vision so much. So, yeah, a lot of pregnant, uh, pregnant ladies have changes in the eyes, like, while they're pregnant. But then, like, once they give birth, it goes back to how it was before. Pregnant women and giving birth is, like, one of the craziest postural changes, too. They talk about that a lot, PRI. They go from basically like yeah. a lot of like the very skinny, um, they call them narrows in the eye head, like the very little rib cage flare to, uh, to wide. It's like a power lifter. And then they go back to being a narrow just after giving birth. Yeah, it's nuts. crazy how many, it's crazy how many changes like the body goes under. Yeah. So what are the, the worst habits that you, um, see people doing for ocular health, eye health? 
Yeah. So, uh, squinting, staring. So a lot of people have like a tendency to like not blink and not move their eyes at all. And just like stare straight ahead. Um, that just causes like stress in the eyes and also in the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, also just like clenching. So a lot of people like unconsciously like clench their jaw. They unconsciously clench the pelvic floor. Um, they also do this with their eyes. So like, even like when people like right before you go to sleep, a lot of people like when they just close their eyes to go to sleep, they're like still like squeezing them shut instead of just like gently closing them. Mm. Um, so if you're one of those people that like you're about, you're going to bed and you notice that you're like squeezing your eyes, that's a good sign that you're like constantly just like straining your eyes all day. And you're just like holding on tension there. Um, so one of the things I like to recommend, it's called palming. It's basically just like, you're not pressing on the eyes with your hands, but you're like gently cupping your hands um, over your eyes. Uh, It's just kind of like relaxing for the eye muscles. It just like signals for the eyes to relax. And when you're doing this, you should kind of like let the eyes move around. Like don't like force the eyes to like look straight ahead. Just let them kind of like wander around and just like move around. Um, Because I think a lot of people kind of forget that like, their eyes, like healthy eyes are constantly moving. Yeah, They're never like staying in one spot. So I like to read outside a lot and um, sometimes I'll work outside of my laptop. Do you think that's one of the cases where you might be beneficial, better off wearing sunglasses so you're not squinting from all the sunlight? Yeah, you can even get um, a tint um, on your computer. Like Ooh. if you tint the screen a certain color, it kind of acts as sunglasses. In terms of- Like the- I-, I like I have this app on my, on my computer. What is it called? Flux. I forgot what it's called, but there's this app and they can actually put like a filter over your screen. That's kind of like acting like sunglasses. Oh, really? So you can see the screen better when you're out in the sun. I have an app. I didn't know um, you yeah, could do that. I pers- yeah. I personally just use a hat and I'm usually okay. Just using a hat and then doing a tint over the screen. Okay. I think it's like a, it's like a yellowish tint. Uh, that helps. Sometimes I feel, and I was curious about this. I feel like my vision is generally gets better maybe in the summer a little bit, but after I come out from sitting outside looking at my computer, I don't know if it's the glare or something, but everything just, uh, it just seems off for a while afterwards. Yeah. I think it's also just because like your, your photoreceptors when you, it's actually good for your eyes, I think to go from dark to light quickly because that stimulates like lymphatic drainage and blood flow. Um, so I just think like the different, the changes in stimulation in your, to your photoreceptors, there's this thing called like bleaching the photoreceptors. It's basically like when you expose the eye to like a ton of light, it can kind of like bleach out some of your photoreceptors a little bit. So I think that's why like when you're going from light to dark, it might take a little while to like re- for your photoreceptors to kind of like readjust. So it's not necessarily, it's probably a good thing then in that case. It's not necessarily a, a bad thing. It's not necessarily a bad thing. I think it's just your eyes are adjusting to different uh, light environments. Interesting. That makes a lot of sense. And maybe your photoreceptors are like a little bit like more bleached out. And so some of them are just like coming back from that. So I was thinking about getting in a, a, the, I don't know if you know Gemba Red. They're a pretty cool company. Um, they sell red lights and they have a one that's for your desk. Um, uh, do you think that would be a good practice? Just have an extra computer also could have it in your periphery. So you're looking at that and getting it in indirectly. Yeah. I don't see why not. Um, I personally use red light therapy. Um, so yeah, I definitely think it's beneficial to have like 
some red light there to balance out the blue light spectrum. That makes sense to me. I know there's like all these kind of like fancy lights now that are like trying to like reproduce the sunlight when you're indoors. I've seen those like, I think one of them is called like sky portal or something like that. And that's in terms of, but it's basically like, no, it's basically a light that tries to like recreate what it would be like to be a natural light inside. So that like, if you're working on your computer, you could still be getting the benefits of like natural light by using like that. Yeah. It's called like sky portal or something like that. We have a, a pretty healthy office, so maybe I'll be able to convince uh, to get some new light bulbs. Yeah, that would be a good idea. <laughs> Why not? Um, yeah, I think that's like the da- the biggest downside to working in an office, right? Is that like you can't control like what kind of light you're exposed to there. I mean, you can wear blue light blockers, but yeah. you're still getting like a good amount of flicker, which is like stressful on the brain and your skin is still getting luckily we have huge windows on the side so we don't even use the lights a lot of time uh just because there's so much natural light oh that's super nice um but uh two questions is there any issue with looking into the red light directly do you think there's mixed things on that i feel like i know um gemba red they've Mm -hmm. come out with something um all about that just like about like is it okay for your eyes to get red light and all that Personally, I usually tell people to just like have their eyes closed and not stare straight into it. Um, I think that's just like safer since I feel like we don't exactly know yet. Um, So yeah, especially I think there's some like controversy with like specifically the infrared light. Okay. There's maybe some studies saying like the infrared light uh, too much for the eyes isn't good. So yeah, personally, I just close my eyes when I look at it. I don't like keep my eyes open when I do red light therapy. And then I know that windows block a lot of the natural, like the full spectrum lights and it's all not going in. I heard you mention that obviously it's really important to get outside and get natural sunlight, but I heard you mention that even just cracking your window, like in a car or just having it slightly open makes a big difference. Is that just from like the light getting in indirectly or what is that from? Probably just because you're getting like, cause the, the car windows, they block UV light. So you're getting just like a more balanced spectrum. You're getting a little bit of UV light back in there. Um, I don't think the windows block infrared, but um, yeah, they do definitely block UV. So you're not going to be able to get all the benefits of full spectrum light through a window, but you will get some. Gotcha. But the biggest downside is that it it blocks UV light. Uh, One one question I'd like to ask everyone though is, uh, and this is off the top, so I always think it's fun to ask. What do you? What does it mean, being healthy mean? I actually do have one other question, but um, what does being healthy mean to you? Um, so to me, being healthy kind of means like having a balance with like mental, emotional, um, physical health. So um, definitely, just like for me, I have to remember to like not get like too neurotic about like food and stuff like that. Like just like having a meal with like family or, or like going out to eat once in a while with family or with friends, um, that can be like super beneficial to your health. Um, actually help you like digest food better as well when you're like eating with other people and socializing. Um, so definitely just like remembering to like have balance in life and just like enjoy life as well and not get too like 
strict or regimented. 100%. That's something I like to incorporate. <laughs> yeah. I feel like a lot of these, it's funny. It's, it's the irony of a lot of these health professionals are probably, some of them, and I've been in that position where you're so neurotic about stuff that you're probably in worse yeah, health than yeah. a lot of people that are eating junk food and don't have exactly. a care in the world. Yeah. And it's like your thoughts too, like your thoughts govern your, your health. Like anything that's like happening or any like emotional stuff that's happening has probably more of an effect on your health than like what you're eating. So, um, that's only something I just like try to keep in mind. Like if you're like eating something bad and the whole time you're like, Oh my God, like this is so bad for me. Like blah, 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 like whatever. That's going to be worse than like eating the food itself. Yeah. So that's just something like I need to remind myself of from time to time, but, um, that's only something that has improved my health. Like since I was, since I started on like my whole health journey and everything like that, that's mm-hmm. only something that once I like stopped being like so regimented, um, I definitely saw a huge like improvement in my own health. Speaking of how did you get into repeat in that sort of world? So I actually, when I first kind of got into health, I was more of like plant-based. I thought like meat was bad for you. Um, and I, I was like, yeah, I was not eating meat. I was trying to just like eat as many plants as possible. Um, that kind of thing. But once I, I think I actually like ran into like Ray Pete and like those concepts on Instagram. Um, but a lot of it like made a lot of sense to me. Um, not that I'm like, I strictly like follow any like particular like diet or like repeat diet. I'm not, you know, strict about it, but a lot of his, um, his work definitely influenced like how I view saturated fat, um, things like that. So yeah, it definitely was counter to the mainstream counter things I had heard. Um, but it did make a lot of sense. So what about about the serotonin light connection? What do you think about that? Um, yeah, he says that like serotonin is actually a stress hormone, right? Yeah. And that like, it's not as good as everyone thinks. It's interesting. I think it probably, I think he's probably right in some regard where probably a lot of people have too much serotonin and not the other way around. Um, but I think there's probably, it's still possible for people to have not enough. Specifically, if you're low in um, like the precursor to serotonin, which I think is like the amino acid, like tryptophan. So he's saying that like, oh, okay, most people have high tryptophan because they're eating uh, too many muscle meats, right? Mm-hmm. They're not getting enough of the like anti-inflammatory amino acids. But I definitely think that's possible. Personally, I'm, I'm, I always test for low tryptophan. Really? <laughs> so I'm actually the opposite of that. So I'm like, oh, I don't know. I... I don't know if I follow that. Also, I think the people that have high serotonin are typically high histamine people, right? Yeah. So I'm actually, I'm not like a high histamine, high serotonin person. So it's the opposite for me. But I think for a lot of people, it's probably true. He also mentioned, and it was interesting hearing you because dopamine and serotonin tend to be antagonistic to one another or opposites. And you said, I forget exactly what you said. I don't want to butcher what you said, but uh, about dope, getting enough light being necessary for dopamine production to, to properly stimulate the formation of the eyeball. And he, he has talked about how serotonin actually sensitizes you to, to the light. So it makes you basically makes the light seem brighter, I believe, which can actually damage the eyes. That makes sense. Um, so yeah, if you're like a high serotonin, um, 
Yeah. If, if also, if you have high histamine as well, that kind of dilates the blood vessels, right? Yeah. So that type of person, I could see that. But that also has to do with the nervous system too. And so like if someone's ciliary muscle is fatigued, um, that also has to do with the muscles in the eye, right? So it all I think that more has to do with your nervous system. So if someone's under a lot of stress, their eyes aren't going to dilate, aren't going to um, constrict enough when they're in the light and they're going to stay too dilated. And that's why they're light sensitive because oh, wow. the signal isn't the the proper signal isn't going um, from the brain to the eye to tell the eye what to do. That makes sense. And that has to do with uh, the nervous system as well. But yeah, I've never looked into uh, the serotonin component with that. That's interesting. So you're saying serotonin, what were you saying? He was saying the elevated sense serotonin, which it, it does act as a vasodilator as well in some context, which is basically what you just said, um, sensitizes you to light. And I believe it says maybe it allows too much light to get in, which I think is also along the lines of what you just said. And that can uh, actually cause damage to the eyes. That would make sense. Yeah. So I think it's probably a combination of things that causes it. Um, but yeah, they, they say that like people that are, stuck in fight or flight their eyes are like too dilated most of the time so maybe like if your eyes are too dilated that can also be a sign that um you have too high serotonin i would have thought your eyes, context i would have thought your eyes were during yeah yeah during flight or flight now so you could see better but is it the opposite actually they would uh open up because that's how you like get more light in the eye oh that makes sense your eyes kind of open, like the pupils kind of uh, open up when they want to let more light in the eye. And that's like, you're on high alert. So you're like, oh shit, like anything can happen. I need to like be on high alert. I need to like be really susceptible to light. Okay. And that light got, signals. And that, would that open up your periphery then? No, that would, if you're in fight or flight, you're closing up your periphery. Okay. Because you're only focusing on like the immediate threat. A more constricted pupil allows you to view the periphery better. More constricted pupil, um, you're actually limiting light. So it's like, oh, okay, like, you know, I'm calmer. I don't need to be like on high alert, like looking for any type of light signal that could pop up. Yeah. And then my last question for you was what are the biggest issues and practices and practices you'd like to see fixed within the field of ophthalmology or optometry? The thing I really wanted to help with more that I felt like I wasn't able to was mainly just like proper education. So I feel like a lot of times patients are just like given a diagnosis and it just like becomes their identity. And so they're not really told like what lifestyle changes or what dietary changes they could do. Um, to actually like stop the progression or fix their condition. And a lot of the times they're given like a really poor prognosis um, or they're just not properly educated on, you know, how they could prevent it from getting worse and, or how they could have like prevented it in the first place. Um, so I really just think like more of a focus on prevention would be cool. And there's a lot of like really cool technology that I think um, can be used for like early detection, early prevention. Um, so I just think if there was more of a focus on that, um, we could just help a lot more people. Is that in terms of myopia you're saying or diseases in general? 
Uh, well, myopia, the big, the big thing I wish I could change with that is like not telling myopes to like wear their glasses all the time. Uh, because usually like when someone is told they're myopic, they're like, okay, here's a pair of glasses, wear them all the time. And then it's not really stressed to them that like by wearing these glasses all the time and like, let's say they're wearing them for computer work. It's not told to them that they're wearing glasses that are 20 times too strong. Yeah. Um, so I, I think definitely patient education is one thing I would, I wish I could. Uh, well, you're doing a good job. You have one of my favorite Instagrams out there. I, your account is awesome. Oh, awesome. Thank you. That means <laughs> <It's>, a lot. <laughs> you're the only person talking about this sort of stuff. So it was so cool getting into you and hearing you talk about PRI. Maybe we'll get uh, you and Elena on at some point. We can have you both go back and forth. That'd be fun. Yeah, I've actually learned so much from her. Um, I find it so fascinating because she works with like neurooptometrists a lot. Mm. Um, and it's so fascinating how she like puts... Like I already knew how much posture impacted vision, but I love actually seeing someone like put it into practice because that's something like I have never seen in, in the field before. Yeah. Um, so I think she's really like a game changer for like practicing optometrists, especially people that want to have like more of like a holistic approach um, and care more about like the whole body in general and not just like giving a new prescription out and giving someone a new prescription every year, for yeah. example. And yeah. just like being like, Oh, you got worse. Here's a new prescription. I was asked my eye doctors, like, is there anything, do, is there anything to the vision drills or anything like that that you can do to, you know, maybe improve your vision or at least prevent it. And she, I mean, I don't, she's a very nice woman. I have no issues with her. Good eye doctor, in my opinion. Yes. But she was like, yeah, there's no, there's nothing you can do. It's just kind of, you know, luck of the draw. And it's crazy how much that yeah. has to do with. It's crazy. Like it's just not, it's kind of not. Yeah. Not I mean, true. it's a shame. It's a shame because like, that's like what you're taught. Right. So usually like a lot of people, when they're taught something in school, they don't like seek out new information. And if new information does present to them, they already have a bias. Like they already have cognitive bias against it because it's opposite of what they were taught. So it's funny because I was, I'm in like a forum, uh, like a Facebook group, for, like eye doctors, someone posted the other day um, something from in someone's Instagram being like sunglasses, like prevent vitamin D production. They were like, Oh, just a quick Google search. Doesn't like necessarily like refute this, but like my gut instinct is that like this can't be true because like you're only told good things about sunglasses in tree school. Um, so people were just like, yeah, it's quackery. It's not true. Blah, blah, blah. And someone's like, yeah. Um, light in the eyes doesn't affect melanin production, um, which is just like a quick like journal article search. You could see like light in the eyes does impact melanin production. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I just think there's like a lot of like misconceptions, especially about light because like if you're just like drilled into you like for four years that something's bad, um, it's hard. Like it's hard to like, change your belief around something when like you have like such a strong cognitive bias. Yeah. That's one of the things. That's so yeah, when I, sorry, when on. I did bring that up, they were the doctor I brought that up to is like, Oh yeah, I'm sorry. I guess I was wrong. Which like, that's cool. Like when people can like admit that yeah. like they're wrong about something and change their belief, like a lot of people that's hard for them to do. And Alina, um, actually talked to me a little bit about this, but she was saying like the more locked up people are in their body, the harder it is for them to like change their beliefs. Oh, wow. Um, so the more like open-minded 
uh, people are, or I think my headphones just said, um, <laughs> the more open-minded people are, um, that's actually reflected in your posture. And it's also probably reflected in the eye prescription as well. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised um, if there was a study out there about this. There might be. But I think like myopes tend to have like certain personality traits. Um, and they're kind of more like more of a fixed mindset and less open-minded. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things back to like the omega threes and sunblock argument where I saw someone like one of the evidence-based practitioners and they all want their meta-analysis. And there's like, there's no evidence that high consumption of the vegetable oils or omega threes will increase your ability to sunburn. I was like, I mean, right. There's no, there's no studies in this, but this is day one chemistry that we know they're significantly less stable. So like you have to, the rule of thumb, science generally prevails. Like chemistry generally, there's this underlying stuff that is true until proven otherwise versus the other way around. Like we understand that UV light has to do with melanin production. Why, why would we assume that it doesn't? Very dogmatic. Yeah. And I just feel like a lot of people on the forum were just like dismissing it without researching it. Right. Yeah. Or like, um, just because like they have such a strong cognitive bias, they won't even like put the time in to like research it or figure out like, Oh, maybe this is true. Um, but like, my they were like oh do you think they were like asking me like oh do you think this like would have a big impact on vitamin d and i was just like there's no like legit studies on it but it makes sense just because most of your photoreceptors are in the eyes right yeah um so like yeah you have photoreceptors in the skin but what would have more of an impact right yeah so i definitely think there's things that we don't know right but they just like intuitively make sense yeah, I think I've been thinking about a definition for holistic medicine or in my head. And I think in some sense, holistic medicine is, I don't want to say tendency, it's not the right word, but let's say ten, the tendency to not deny anything. Like you'll take any sort of evidence, anecdotal or whatnot. It could be mumbo jumbo, doesn't need to have anything and take it into account. You don't have to like say, you tell me sunglasses are bad and that means I'm throwing all, all my sunglasses, but you say, oh, you know, that does make sense and that could be true. Yeah, I definitely think um, holistic practitioners tend, do tend to keep more of an open mind about things. Um, so I don't know if that's like, you know, something that is just like drilled into it in school and like, or if it's just like their personality type is more likely to go to school, to have like a longer track in school. Um, so again, it's like, there's so many factors it's hard to say if like oh it was like their personality trait to start with or if like being like drilled something in school all those years um is what kind of like makes them more inflexible yeah probably a little bit both but i think it's probably a combination <laughs> there you go awesome well i think we can go ahead and wrap this up where can everyone find you yeah um they can find me on instagram my handle it's optimizing health isn't it, isn't it optimizing it. health <laughs> No, it's someone else said that to me once. It's just optimizing health. Oh, I don't know why I thought it was optimizing (laughs) eye health. Uh, Someone said that to me the other day too. I was like, no. (laughs) That's funny. Just optimizing health, yeah. Well, I highly recommend everyone give Taylor a follow. Taylor, hold on a minute while we wrap up the show. And thank you so much for coming on. This was a great conversation. I hope everyone will enjoy it. And um, that's it for this episode of the Thermodot. Until next time, guys, be good.